0: Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you are your You are So today, um, the Lord has been speaking to me through the book of James. And I know many of you probably have read the book of James, so if you're taking notes today, the title of the message is titled, Jesus in the Midst, Jesus in the Midst. So I want to kind of give a little bit of background of who James was, because several men in the New Testament go by the name of James. But today, this James is the James that we're talking about. It's the half-brother of Jesus, The half-brother of Jesus he was raised in the same home as Jesus along with his other brothers and two sisters we're not too clear exactly how many sisters he had we know he had two but there possibly could have been more so they all grew up together Jesus being the oldest he was the firstborn of Mary then came James right after him and this this might be an interesting fact to, to some of you guys All throughout Jesus' life and through his ministry, James and his other brothers didn't believe that Jesus said who he was. They doubted him. They didn't believe that he was the coming Messiah. Even through his miracles and his ministry, they still didn't believe him. And we see this in John chapter 7 verse 5. It says, for even his brother didn't believe him. And it's hard. It was hard for many people that grew up with Jesus to believe that what he was saying was true, who he was claiming to be was true. We, we see it in scripture that even his neighbors who saw him as a child, they had doubt about him when Jesus claimed that he came down from heaven. In John chapter six, it says this, then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and his mother. How can he say he came down from heaven? So imagine his neighbors saw Jesus grow up as as a little boy. They're like, wait a minute. We know this guy. We know him. What is this crazy talk that he's talking about? We saw Jesus grow up. I know his mom. I know his dad. I know Joseph. And he's claiming these things. They had a hard time grasping this. So many people that were close to him, including his brothers and his sisters, couldn't grasp that he was the Messiah. Just imagine James being raised in the same home as Jesus, seeing Jesus and doing life with him every day. You just get comfortable around people. You get familiar with them. It's family that you're growing up with. It's a, it's a daily routine that you see them. Do any of you have older brothers in here? Anybody here has an older brother? So imagine growing up with your older brother and then he tells you one day, guess what? I'm the son of God. You're going to look. (laughs) That will be my reaction. I go, you're who? Your older brother that you've seen your entire life. And then he tells you, I'm the son of God. I'm pretty sure that you're going to have your doubts too. You would question. You would probably say, man, well, wait a minute. I've known you my whole life. I know you. What do you mean you're the son of God so so in a way it's kind of understandable for his siblings to doubt to question what Jesus was saying later on in his life and it's really not until later that James comes to an understanding of who Jesus is and his equality with God so we see in first Corinthians chapter 15 In verse 6, it says this, after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers. This is after Jesus' resurrection. At one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And in verse 7, check this out, it says, then he was seen by James and later by all of the apostles. So it's very special because the Lord actually makes a special appearance to James after his resurrection. And at this point, many believers and many scholars uh, think that this is at the time where James came to faith in Jesus after seeing him resurrected. And James actually later ends up becoming the pastor or overseer of the church in Jerusalem. And we see this in the book of Acts when the early church was, was being established. So the letter of James is great. It's actually, it's a really good book. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. This letter is great because it's going to touch on so many different topics in such a short amount of of verses. In chapter 1 alone. So here are some things that, that we're going to cover today. So James speaks on seeking wisdom from God. He speaks on faith and unbelief. Then he speaks on poverty and wealth. Then he talks about enduring under trials And then the last part of scripture that we're going to cover today, James speaks on temptations. So James covers so much information here today. We're going to cover so much information here today that I truly pray that it brings growth to our lives. Amen. So if you're with me here, turn to James chapter one. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. So some of the translations or some of the words may be a little bit different for you. So James chapter one, we'll start at verse one. James. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll stop right there. So important to see how James begins this letter. He could have started this letter off in many ways. He could have started off as saying, I'm James, the son of Joseph and Mary. I'm James, pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Or even, I'm the James, Jesus is my half-brother. But he didn't start the letter that way. Instead, look what he says. Some translations will, will say a different. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's so awesome because James doesn't use his position here, nor his relationship to the Lord to address the people. Instead, he recognizes that position doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what title you hold, what degree you have, what position you have in your job, how the community recognizes you. These things, these earthly positions... They don't matter. That's not to discredit. If you have a high position and, and, and a job and you've attained it and you've achieved it, that's not to discredit that. We know that the Lord honors hard work. So it's not to discredit that. But what matters here is, are you a servant of Christ? Are you a servant of Christ? Do you proclaim your position in him over a worldly title? You know, think about when you meet somebody for the first time. You shake their hand. Imagine an introduction like this. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm Omar. I'm a disciple and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that. If somebody were to introduce themselves like that, I personally have never met someone that has introduced themselves like that. But imagine how powerful, and I guarantee you, an introduction like that will stick with that person for their lifetime. I challenge you guys. Somebody you meet for the first time, introduce yourself just to see what a just to see what a reaction is. See what somebody would say. Just look at the look on their face when you tell them that. Hi, I'm Tito, disciple and servant of the God Almighty. Nice to meet you. I'm also a teacher. Imagine that. What an introduction! And we see it throughout all Scripture. When Paul writes, when James writes, when Peter writes, when they're writing their letters and their epistles, this is the way they start the introduction. Paul says it in almost all of his writings. Paul, an apostle, I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes to say, I am a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. James here is saying it. I'm James, a servant of God. So from the beginning, he's taking a title that he is a servant, a servant of the Lord. We continue in verse one, and it says to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Another translation may say to the 12 tribes in dispersion. So now James is writing this letter to the Jews of the time, but it's definitely applicable to Gentiles as well. He was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, but the church became scattered because of persecution. And he's really writing to the scattering of believers of the time. I I believe it's not just to the church, but it's to all believers that have been persecuted. And this was around the time where Stephen, we remember Stephen, the story of Stephen, For Stephen was killed in Jerusalem. He was stoned to death. It's around the same time when Paul, before he became Paul, so actually Saul of Tarsus, right? He was Saul of Tarsus. He, He was going around the city persecuting and capturing Christians. This is the time that this letter is being written. And to the Jews of the time, to the believers of the time, because of fear of the persecution, they scattered everywhere. And we're going to go back now to the, to the book of Acts, And Acts chapter 8, we see this, of when the persecution started, a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. So many Christians were dispersed. They were scattered because of fear. So James begins to write this letter to encourage his brothers. Now we get to verse 2. And I don't know if in your Bible you highlight or you underline or maybe in your notes you could write down these four words the way that he starts this. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So there's two parts to this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. This is just such a strange statement for us. It's very strange to hear this. It's hard for us to do. Many of us don't consider trials joyful. And if you're one of the select few that does, let me know what the secret is. I don't know the secret. It's hard to be joyous in trials. When I'm in the middle of a trial, and maybe you guys could relate to this, it's all that I see before me. I'm like a horse, like a racehorse with blinders on, and all I see is the trial before me. I don't see anything else. And many times I get to a place of desperation in my, in my trial, and I want it to end. And I'm sure most of us are, are the same way when, when we enter something that's difficult We just want it to be over and we want it to end. It's not something comfortable and it's definitely not something joyous. Trials are hard, they're difficult. So, the last thing on my mind is to be joyful. How can I find joy when I'm walking through the fire? Maybe you guys can ask yourself that. How do you find joy in the midst of the fire? How do you find joy when you get diagnosed with an illness? How do you find joy when your marriage is falling apart? How do you find joy when I don't know how I'm going to provide for my family? How do I find joy when blank you fill it in? How do you find joy? And in this text, James is saying to find the joy when you go through these things. Find the joy. How can we find joy in these circumstances when there's nothing joyful about them? Well, first, let's, let's take a look as to maybe why these trials are happening. So, if you could turn with me, we're going to go to the book of Hebrews now. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. And the writer of Hebrews says this it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? to verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Underline that last part. Those who have been trained by it. So, maybe, just maybe, God has purposed this trial for you, for your training, for you to be built up. So, through your trial, are you allowing yourself to be trained up, or will the trial defeat you? What has life's trials taught you? Go ahead, just shout something out. How evil you are. Wow. That's a very honest answer. Amen. Let's hear something else. What has life's trials taught you? You don't trust God. Doubting. Doubting the Lord. That's good. We're going to get into that. Doubting the Lord. How evil our hearts are. Right? Anger. Weak. Yeah, absolutely. Trials sometimes bring out ugliness from us. But we have a choice. We definitely have a choice because I feel that the trial and what the author of Hebrews is writing here is that certain trials are for our training. And sometimes we know it's hard and we don't understand. And we're like, man, Lord, Lord, what's the lesson out of this trial? Because we hear it so often. Oh, you're going through something because God wants to show you something. I don't see what you want to show me in my sickness here, Lord. This is very difficult for me to comprehend and for me to understand. We get to a place of just so much pain and so much sorrow that we just don't see how we're going to be built up from this. We may not understand it, but understand this, that God has allowed it. God has allowed it. And sometimes we believe that God always wants us to be happy and to prosper. Can I speak a little bit of truth this morning? A lot of people in the Christian walk, when you first come to faith... We believe that our life is going to be perfect. That's not the truth. That's not the truth. Life is not going to be perfect. We're going to have trials to be built up in. And we believe that God wants us happy to prosper all the time. And when something bad happens, we just go and start rebuking everything. I wanted to go to the beach yesterday. Oh, it started raining. It's Satan's fault. I rebuked the enemy in Jesus name because of the rain. That's not the truth. Things just happen. God allows things to happen. He allows the trial sometimes. And it may be, it may not be the enemy. He may be allowing the hardship for your benefit. And sometimes God has to allow you to become a Job. You have to become a Job sometimes. Job is known as one of the most faithful servants of the Lord. And look at what a mess his life became. And God allowed it, God allowed the mess. God allowed the ugly, God allowed the trial, he allowed the situations, he allowed the death of his family, he allowed everything to be stripped away from him. His businesses were gone, his cattle was gone, his brothers and his sisters died. The worst of the worst happened and in Job, what did he do? He got to a place of doubting for a second, absolutely, he got to a place of doubting. But at the end, everything was restored to him. Because he was still a faithful servant of the Lord. Faithful servant of the Lord. So we become a Job sometimes. All for his glory and for his purpose. So that you can be made strong. So that you can persevere. So that you can endure. Not always are things from the enemy. We can't just go around rebuking every bad thing that happens to us. I'm not saying that things from the enemy attacks from the enemy don't come. All right? We need to discern what are we walking into? Is it spiritual warfare or is it godly discipline? We gotta discern those two. Because absolutely there is attacks of the enemy on our lives, but we need to discern is it a spiritual warfare or is it godly discipline? Is my trial meant to destroy me or is my trial meant to build me up? And if we really get to a humble place with this, we can all say that we need a little bit of growing to do. And trials bring forth growth. Yeah, they're not fun. And this passage says they're painful, but it yields great reward if you allow it to train you. Not everyone allows the trials to train them. I haven't allowed trials in my life to train me. And that's why you see people walk around bitter. Because they've never allowed the hardships in their life to build them up. Instead, they've allowed the hardships to tear them down. I've met people older, older age. And all that I hear come out of their mouth is straight bitterness. And they relive things that that has happened to them 30, 40 years prior. They never allowed the hardship to train them up. And they hang on to that. And it's caused their heart to become callous. It's caused their heart to become bitter. Because they were never trained in the trial that the Lord placed before them. God has purpose storms in your life. To train and build you up. So count them all joy. Count them all joy. And James is writing to those who are scattered here as I said. And, and look what he says in verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. It produces perseverance. So in the testing that you're enduring, is it going to rise something up in you? Is it going to produce and cause you to overcome and come out stronger? Or will you walk in defeat? Will you walk in bitterness? Write this down. The testing is going to yield a result is going to yield a result. What test have you taken where you don't get a grade in? What competition have you competed in that there's no prize at the end? I'm I'm, I'm scared to hear an answer on that one. During a test, you're going to get a grade at the end. Are you going to get a good grade or a bad grade? That's what it is. There's going to be a test and there is a grade at the end of a test. There's going to be a competition. There is a prize at the end of a competition. James is saying this test, what you are currently enduring, will yield a result, a grade, an outcome of perseverance. He's telling you what the grade's gonna be if you endure the trial. It's perseverance. You're going to go through it, but the yield is going to be something great and mighty if we trust God in it. If you trust God in it. It's two parts to, to verse three, now that I'm looking at it, because you know that the testing. We know the test is coming. We know the trial is coming. But look at the promise. It's going to produce something amazing. So the test and the promise. So this is kind of awesome because we already know what the greater the test is going to be is what James is saying. The test is coming. If your are faithful, it's going to produce perseverance. You know, I had a teacher tell me this once when I was going through school. He came in and he said, I don't understand how you guys fail test if all the answers are in the book. Man, that's kind of true. But I'm just not a studious person, a studious person. I just don't want to study. I don't want to put in the effort to learn the material. But it's actually correct. How do you fail if the answers are written in the book? Are you a student of God's word? Are we studying God's word enough To know what the answers are, to know the promises of God over our lives. I encourage you, be a student of the word. Let's go to verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. There's a lot to say here. Let me tell you a story of what happened to me on Thursday. Is it because of wisdom? Is that what we all lack wisdom? It's funny because when I read that, I started laughing too. It's funny because he says, if any of you lacks wisdom. No, No, it's not if any of us lack wisdom. We lack wisdom. We lack wisdom. Let me tell you what happened to me on Thursday. I have AirPods. I'm sure most of you guys probably have AirPods. And I'm on a walk. And I'm writing notes for this word. I'm speaking to my AirPods. And it's writing notes on the note application on my phone. So it's, it's writing notes, and, and in the note that I'm writing through my AirPods, I say, let me ask the Lord for wisdom, because it was going to be a part of the preaching today. So when I look at my phone, <laughs> when I look at my phone, it says, it didn't say, let me ask the Lord for wisdom, it said, call Pastor Rico." <laughs> so I go, that didn't even sound anything close to like what I said. <laughs> like, let me call Pastor Rico." I was in shock. I took a screenshot of that and I texted. I told her, I, I need to send you this right now. And I told Rigo the story. I'm walking and I'm speaking to my AirPods, and I said, and I'm asking, and I'm telling the AirPods, let me ask God for wisdom. And God's like, okay, sure, call Pastor Rigo. <laughs> I freaked out. So I told him in the text, I told him, hey man, well, what's the wisdom? The Lord has directing me to you. I need some wisdom. What's the word of the day? And Regal responds to me, and he says, I usually don't do this, but I'm going to send you something that I never do, something that he posted on his social media. We're going to get into it later. And man, did it blow me out of the water. Talk about wisdom from the Lord, how God used someone to give me amazing wisdom. Amazing wisdom. You guys should test it, talk in your AirPods to see what comes out in yours. (laughs) See what happens. Don't be surprised if it's something bad. Let's just leave it there. Let's just leave it there. Okay, so if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. If any of us lacks wisdom, that is all of us. We lack wisdom. We can't sit here and say that we have all made decisions that have aligned with the will of God. There's nobody in this room that that has happened to. So it's not if we lack wisdom, is we do lack wisdom. We've made bad decisions where we needed God's wisdom and yet we failed to ask him for it. We search for human wisdom instead of the Lord's wisdom. Why do we do this? I'll tell you why. Because as humans, we are impatient. We live in a generation where we get answers in seconds. In seconds, we don't want to wait on the Lord. We want the answer now, and we want the answer fast. You know, for VBS, when we were here, I was sitting in the back with my nephew. My nephew, Christopher, came to VBS, and Rudy wasn't too far, and and Rudy at the time was wearing an Apple Watch, and it had the, the, the Siri logo on it, and my nephew just looks at it, and he goes, hey, Siri, what's the weather? He's five years old. He said, Siri, what's the weather? And I saw that he was getting frustrated because Siri wasn't answering him. He wanted the information and he wanted it fast. Somebody, Siri's going off. We live in a generation where we get answers quick. And I saw it in my nephew. He got, he must have asked Siri 10 times. Siri, what's the weather? Why? Because at home he has an Alexa. Alexa, what's the weather? And Alexa answers in what? 0.024 seconds. So when he saw that he wasn't getting the answer, he gets frustrated. That happens in our own lives. When we're praying and we're asking the Lord for an answer, we're not getting the answer. we get frustrated. We, we're impatient people. Our generation is too fast, because we've been conditioned that way. We've been conditioned to not have patience. We want the answer now. And we want the answer to be what we want it to be. And a lot of times, listen, it could be lack of patience here, but it could also be pride in our hearts. Some people have trouble admitting that they need help. I've met people like this. And even me at times, maybe we could all relate to this. We, We have trouble admitting, man, I need help. I don't have all the answers but because of the pride in my heart in my heart I don't reach out to the one who has all the answers. We want the answers without the prayer. That's really what it comes down to. We want the answers without a prayer. And when we don't have the answers, we need to come to a place of humility before the Lord and catch this trust his timing. Isaiah 40 Verse 31 says this, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Wait on the Lord. Be patient. Trust his timing. Rely on him. And we need to seek the Lord for wisdom. We seek the Lord for, we ask him for wisdom. And not only does he give wisdom, but look what it says, he gives wisdom generously. Generously. He's going to give you plenty. He's not going to give you a fraction of the answer. Ask for wisdom. He's going to give it to you. When we're asking with a sincere heart. Right? Verse 6. But let him ask in faith. This is going back to what some of the answer we had. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Or that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double minded man, unstable in all of his ways. You know, we see reference many times in scripture of the wind. And the wind is not something that is stable, it tosses you back and forth. And if we follow the winds of this world, it's going to leave you shipwrecked. That's what's going to happen because the winds constantly change in this world. They're not rooted in God's truth. But God's truth never changes. Right? God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The truth will never change. And then we see what James is saying here, that in our prayer, in our asking, let us not come with doubt. How many times haven't we come to to the Lord in prayer without thinking that he could do it? We just go through the motions of things. And I think every Christian in here has been there. We say a prayer, but we're doubtful that God can come through. We're doubtful of it. Because we just go through the motions of prayer. Not really expecting that God is able. I forgot where this poll was taken. uh, But I heard this, that most Christians will not admit to doubt in their walk. They won't admit to it. But most Christians have struggled with doubt in their walk. That's just the truth of it. The majority of us have struggled with a doubt at some point within our faith. And we struggle with unbelief at times, and and it could be in many different areas, but a lot of it does come in prayer. We just don't trust that God can heal, that God can restore. We don't trust God with what will happen tomorrow. We go through seasons like that sometimes, where we're shaken. We pray, but we doubt that God can actually come through. And the doubt comes for a few reasons He's taking too long to answer our prayer. He's answered, but not in the way that we want Him to answer. Or He's just not hearing me. He's, God's not hearing me correctly. And it's a dangerous thing because then we just stop praying altogether. It gets to a dangerous place. Now, now, very important here. I'm not saying that every prayer we speak will be answered. We understand this, right? I'm going to show you a, a description of why. Because if our prayer is not according to God's will, then the prayer is from desires of our own heart and not God's heart. Prayers from our will do not get answered because they're not God's will. Maybe some of you have prayed to lose weight on the Krispy Kreme diet. And what happens when you don't succeed at that? Maybe some of you have prayed to win the lottery. And what happens when you don't win the lottery? These are prayers that are coming from the fleshly desires of our heart. And then when these prayers don't come to pass, we get angry with God. And we say, man, the God's not hearing me. The Lord is not hearing me here. And we get angry because our magic genie is not fulfilling our desires. Come on, let me speak truth to you today. God is not genie in a bottle. Okay? He's not our butler. He's not here to grant us desires of the flesh. Our prayers don't come through because it's not aligned with God's will. It's not aligned with His will. Prayer is so important. When we come to it with a genuine heart. With a genuine heart. You remember the disciples? They didn't ask Jesus, Jesus, teach me how to preach. They said, Jesus, teaches us how to pray. That's what they want. They wanted to learn how to pray. Prayer is the communication between us and God. And God responds to us through his word. Right? Sometimes God will whisper something to your heart. He whispers things to us. He whispers things to me. I hope you have that type of intimacy with the Lord. That he just drops a bomb on your heart. Right? That's what prayer is. It's that communication between me, the man, the fleshly man, and the almighty spiritual God. And prayer is so important when we come to prayer with a genuine heart. So when you pray, just as James says, pray in faith without doubt. Pray in a manner that you expect to receive. Expecting that the Lord is going to do this. Knowing that the Lord is able to do this. And even if God doesn't do it. Knowing that God is still good. He is still good. Prayer is so important. Let's go to verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. Verse 11, for the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So James is getting a little bit poetic in this section. I'm not a big fan of poetry, but there is truth to be found in poetry. And in this context, James seems to be saying that the challenges of both poverty and wealth may be among the greatest trials a Christian may face. He's speaking here about the believers in humble circumstances, circumstances that are not financially great. So from an eternal view, I believe that James is saying that your poverty on this earth, while it seems that it's difficult, it's only for a little while. That's why he ends the verse with telling us to take pride in your position of poverty. Because a higher position awaits those who suffer here in poverty. And then he speaks on the rich. Their wealth is actually not real. It could be gone in a second and it will be gone in one second in a blink of an eye. Pretty much for the rich to keep their eyes on the wealth that's found in Jesus. Jesus says it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. We know that verse in, 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 uh, in Matthew. So if you have wealth, yes and amen. It's a blessing from the Lord, no doubt. Now use the wealth for the glory of his kingdom. Use the wealth for the glory of his kingdom. Verse 12, I'm going to start wrapping up now. Verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. In the New King James Version, the word trial is actually temptation. It's two very different things. A trial is a difficulty in your life. A temptation is a temptation to sin. So I like the interpretation of New King James a little bit better um, because blessed is the one who perseveres under temptation. And I believe this because of the next verse, we're going to see verse 13. When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And I hear Christians say this all the time. And maybe you have even said this. Man, God is tempting me. I've heard that before. And you know what? Early in my walk, I've even said that. I'm being tempted here by the Lord. God is not tempting you to sin. We're tempted because we have wicked hearts and because the flesh is weak. That's why we're tempted. It's the condition of the heart that causes this. God may test you. Test and tempt are two very different things. He may test you in certain areas of your faith. Absolutely. But the temptation comes from, look back at verse 14. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Do you know what enticed is? Has anybody ever here gone fishing? You know when you throw the bait out and you're there just working the bait, you're enticing a fish to bite. That's what you want. You want the fish to come and you're enticing them like, man, look what I got for you. A nice big worm. And you're enticing the fish to bite your bait. That's what the scripture is saying. When you are enticed, it doesn't even say that the enemy is doing it. It doesn't say that it's because of the condition of our heart, we get tempted because of our flesh, because of our own evil desires. James doesn't say the enemy is coming to entice you. He's saying because of the condition of your heart, you are being tempted. And then what happens? These desires turn into sin. Look at verse 15. Look what happens if you give in to those temptations. Verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. It's a process here. Okay, this is a process. Desire has to be conceived or acted upon. Then once acted upon, it gives birth to the sin. Then it becomes full grown sin that is not repented of. It becomes full grown. Then sin gives birth to death. Let me tell you something about sin. We should never look at someone and say, man, I cannot believe they did that. How can this person do that? We should actually say, I know how they did it. Because it starts with the heart. And the Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. And we all have the capability of doing these things. So don't be surprised when bad things happen because we live in a fallen state. And it starts with the desire, then you act upon it, then when it fully grows. And when it fully grows, it brings forth death. We need to understand something about this last part, about the death part. Believers don't fall under this portion. The part of death does not apply to us, to those who are in Christ, because our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Thank the Lord for that. So from an eternity standpoint, there is no death that we will face for our sins because the scriptures say that they have been washed as far as from the east is to the west. That's how far our sins have been washed away. However, sin can wreck other parts of our earthly lives. And we've seen what sin can do in our marriages, in our friendships, in our families. Lust in marriages, adultery in marriages, lies in the family, deception in friends, idolatry, stealing, fornicating, judging, gossip, and we could go on and on. We could go on and on when we walk in a state of constantly practicing these things. Sin will wreck our lives. It takes our heart to a bad place. I would love to stand here before you today and say that Christians do not sin. But it's just not true. We fall. But thank the Lord that we have an advocate for us when we do fall. Praise the Lord that Jesus Christ stands in that gap. He stands there to pick us up with love, mercy, and grace. Let's understand one thing here. That the temptation itself is not sin. It's only when we give in to it that it becomes sin. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted, yet he never sinned. And scripture says this in 1 Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Bring it to Him. He's going to show you the way of escape. Look what it says. God is faithful. He's not going to let you drown if you run to the exit. It's kind of like saying that I'm in a burning building and you see the exit, but I still want to play with the fire. You know it's dangerous. You know what can happen if you stay. You know the devastation that it could cause in your life. The temptation will come, but God has an escape plan for you, church. Don't let sin fully grow because once it is rooted around your heart, you are in a bit of trouble. Come to the Lord with it. Repent of it. Surrender it to him. I want to come back to the last verse. Come back to verse 12 for a second. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial or temptation. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Look at the promise of the Lord here. If you persevere under it, after you've stood the test, if you endure it, look at his promise, you will receive the crown of life. You will receive it. I want to encourage you, church, it's not by the power of the flesh, but by the power of the Holy Spirit that you can persevere. Can you say amen to that? Believers, we've been made to persevere because of the one who has overcome all lives within us. And the battle at times will be hard, but church, we have have a living hope. Jesus Christ who has overcome everything. Can I share a little bit of wisdom here today? You know where all this starts? The persevering, the counting it all joy, the defeating temptations. This starts in our homes. Remember earlier when I told you that Pastor Rigo sent me some wisdom? I'm going to share this wisdom with you. I don't know if it's going to come up on the screen or not, but he sent me this. He shared this on his social media. I don't know if maybe some of you have seen it. And this, these things start in our homes. And, and Pastor Rigo says this. We pray for our world but is the answer to heal the world found in praying for our homes. I believe the Christian home is the beacon of light that this world needs. I believe church starts at home before you ever attend one and choose one of your liking. I believe if our homes were healthier, if we prayed more, teach more, worship more in our homes, then everything we touch outside our homes will be greatly impacted by it. I believe the first place that God wants to be glorified and honored is at our home with our family. If the house is not in order, then nothing else we try to succeed or achieve in will ultimately fulfill us or benefit us eternally. I believe in family. I believe in the home. When God created man and woman, he told them to be fruitful and multiply. I believe that the Christian home is to be a blessing to itself and to others because because the Lord is our God. I believe God's first great institution is the family, the home. So please pray for family, for homes. I need it. I'm sure you do too. The family will continue to be attacked. Marriages, husbands, wives, children, because the answer is in it. If another Christian family is destroyed, then the gospel that the family once stood on is also tarnished. So fight for what God has called you to. Don't let others redefine it or force you to accept anything else that God's word has already called it and calls it to be. This is an age that we live in, that we hold on to truth in a world of lies. That we will shine his light in a world that is dark. And that we will demonstrate and share our great hope in a time of hopelessness. Praying for your home today. Your family is important. Pray for mine, Pastor Ego. He shared so much truth and wisdom with me that day. You see, because the trials that we face, the trials that were faced back then are not much different than the trials that we face today. Because the enemy is attacking the home. So how do we look forward and count it our joy in the things that this world is experiencing today, church? Pastor Regal said this, it starts in the home. Men, I'm speaking to men here. Be leaders of your household. Lead your wives and lead your family well. Grab your wife in the middle of the week and begin to pray with her. Grab your children after dinner and begin to worship. Invite your family over and dive into his word. Have regular conversations of Jesus. Don't just add Jesus to your life. Make your life revolve around Jesus. We're not talking about casual leadership here. We're talking about leadership with intentionality. Be intentional with these things. I love what Pastor Rigo said. If another Christian family is destroyed, then the gospel that family once stood on is also tarnished. If your family is rooted in the right things, then the gospel carries on. The gospel's gonna carry on. And I wanna leave you with this men and women, if you haven't already, rise up to the title that the Lord has given you, ambassadors for Christ. That's what you are, ambassadors for Christ. It starts in your home. If your home is a powerhouse, then that will bleed into every aspect of your life. Lead your homes and lead them well. If you could stand with me today. Oh, man. You know, I get chills just thinking about these things sometimes. Karen gets chills because she's cold. I get chills just thinking about the provisions of the Lord and what he's called men to be and women to be, what a family looks like, what he has ordained a family to look like. Ambassadors for his kingdom, men to lead their wives, men to lead their families, women to lead their families. That's what we're called to do, church. We're called to be leaders Everyone in here is a leader. You took the title of Christian, you are a leader. You are a leader because the world is looking at you. The world is seeing how is this person walking and talking and living their life because they're standing for Jesus. Man, let's stand for him well. Let's lead well. That's what we're called to do. Lord God, we come to you today, Lord. Lord God, and as... As your half-brother James said, Lord, to count it all joy. We pray for that, Father God. We pray, Lord, that in the midst of trials, Lord, we can raise our hands, Lord, and count it joy. Because the trials and the things that we suffer here, we know that they are only just for a while. Because you have overcome, Lord Jesus. So we count it all joy. Because of what you have done on the cross, because of your death, burial, and resurrection, I am able to say that no matter what life throws at me, no matter what trial I am facing, no matter what valley I am walking in, I count it joy because of your blood over my life, Lord Jesus. I thank you, Lord God. I pray for every single person in here, Lord. I pray for strength over their lives. I pray, Lord, that when temptation comes, Father God, as your word says, that an exit is made and that we choose the way of escape, Lord. I pray, Father God, I pray for strength. I pray for strength in our leadership, Lord, as men and women of your body, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we lead our families and we lead them well, Father God. And in leading our families well, Lord, that that leads to other conversations with other people, Father God that we are able to wave the name of Jesus as a banner for the world to see. And Lord, so many times we just pray for revival, Lord, and I want the church here to know that revival is here and it starts with us. It starts with us on how well we are going to lead. I pray for encouragement today, Lord God, that those who struggle in areas of leadership or in any aspect of this walk, Father God, Lord, that your hand is just upon them. In every aspect of their life, Lord God. We thank you, Lord. We give you today, Lord God, the greatest praise. All of the honor. And together, God's people say, yes and amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Give the Lord the greatest praise in here. Hallelujah. We always say something before we dismiss, and that is that you are loved. And I want you to know this, church, that you are loved. You're loved here by this family, but most of all, you are loved by God. Amen. Have an amazing Sunday. God bless you guys.